Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. My name is Pastor Jeremy. I'm glad you're here. I'm delighted to see all the youth sitting up front. Yeah. All right. That's exciting to me. I'm ready. Thank you. Yeah. And the other people that aren't youth as well. Right. All right. Good. Good. Happy to see everybody. I really am. (laughs) Welcome back. Summer is over. Oh, no. Oh, wait, wait, wait. The moms just went, woo! And everybody else went, ah. Well, we're glad you're here. This is the, sort of the kickoff of our fall season. I know there's a lot of things kicking off right now, but I would ask uh, one favor of you, and actually it's, it's not a favor for me. It's actually a favor for you. I'm going to ask you for a favor for you, okay? I'm asking that you come back next week. Um, I think it'll actually benefit you. I think life is hard and there are rhythms and cycles and rest and work and play, but worship is one big part of that. And you can restore your soul and be encouraged and connect with the body of Christ every single week, especially by making this a consistent habit. So I want to encourage you, come back as we are here, not just to serve ourselves. It would not, let me tell you, ministry would not be worth it if you're just benefiting yourself. So... We are here to serve you, and we hope you are growing in your faith. Uh, This fall, the way we're going to do that is through this sermon series entitled Engage. That's a really cool name, so that means I didn't come up with it. But basically, the idea is, as a church, normally what I like to do, what we like to do, is go through books of the Bible uh, to see what God has to say. But we've also noticed at times... There are certain areas that need a little bit more attention or emphases, and so we're going to do that this fall and transition back into the book in the winter. And the emphases that we want to go after are these. We want to really help you engage in several key areas of your life, and those include, uh, number one, most importantly, your relationship with God. Number two, then, secondarily, but also very important, your relationship with your family, And number three, after God and family, what's the number one thing we folks like to fight about and worry about? Money. Exactly right. So we're going to talk about the Christian name for that, stewardship. Exactly right. We'll talk about stewardship after that a little bit, not so that we can get your money and not so that someone else can get it, but instead so that you can be encouraged and the burden of guilt and the onus of expectation and all that can be lifted and you can begin to fully employ those resources that God has entrusted you with for this amount of time to serve Him for His glory. So we want to do that. We want to encourage you. And I I hope you'll be a part of that process. So it goes engage with God, engage with family, and then engage in stewardship. Now, if you're visiting here, um, something that some of our folks will probably explain to you after a little while, if you don't get it quite today, is that I'm a little bit weird. I mean, (laughs) you laugh. (laughs) Someone in the first service said, no. I was like, thank you very much. No, I'm a little bit weird. I'll admit that. I do things uh, from a different angle, but it's fun that way. It's not the same every Sunday. Some of you may be worrying about, where'd the table go? Don't worry. It's okay. One week it's a table, another it's a pulpit. This week it's a music stand. Here we are. Praise God. But I, I'm different, and I like to tell stories. Sometimes they're appropriate, sometimes they're not. But usually I ask my wife and say, is this appropriate? 
and she'll say yes or no. Well, today she told me this is appropriate, so I'm going to go ahead and share this story with you. It has to do with about 15 years ago when we were in Dallas, Texas, and we were in seminary at the time, which means graduated from college, now going off to preacher school, so you're still not making any money, and you're living literally in a 500-square-foot garage apartment, and we're kind of like 90 miles an hour, multiple directions. She's running a piano studio. I'm trying to learn Greek, and we're just going, going, going nonstop. Well, she comes home one day from teaching one of her piano students, and I hear her kind of mumbling in the background a little bit. Man, this student, bah, 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 they're never going to get it, you know. I've tried this curriculum, I've tried this method, I've tried this, I've tried that, and their stupid dog keeps getting in the way of the piano, and man, and, and there's nothing that I can do to, and I'm just there washing the dishes, which is what I do every night. Well, the bed's only about three feet away from the sink, so it really wasn't that hard. Here I was washing the dishes, and... Uh, my wife is going, and I'm here in the, the sort of the Robin Williams, Dead Poet Society thing going in my head right at that moment. I'm like, all those motivational speeches you hear in the movies right before they jump up and charge, I'm like, all right, I got this. No problem. We're going to go for it. So I'm scrubbing a dish, and I'm like, listen to her in the background. I'm like, now, by the way, for any good motivational speech, you know what you need. A foreign accent. So, I pull out my best foreign accent. Do you know what you need? (laughs) That's how she reacted, too. (laughs) I was like, you take this piano student. You take him to the mountains. You look off into the storm. And you ask... What do you see? Hot and cold air colliding, molecules crashing together. No! It is la pasión. <laughs> and she's chuckling a little bit. I got another one. Hold on. You go to the safari, and you see two beasts fighting for supremacy. What do you see? La passion. It's a building here. See, we're going somewhere. And then I say, well, you take the piano student. You show them la musica. You ask, what do you see? Black and white dots on a page going up and down. No. What you see? La passione. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Piano student. Done. <laughs> Move over, Robin Williams. Here we go. If I was a better communicator, I could do it better. I'm sorry. That's the best I got. She was laughing. It still didn't work, but at least that was nice. And I'm telling you, there's this strange thing. I don't know if you've seen it. I surely didn't do it well enough, but when you get to that spot, whether it's in a movie or whether it's in life or whether it's in wherever, and all of a sudden, when everything comes crashing down and there's a major gut check and you look inside and you're asking yourself, 
Why am I here? What am I doing? What's driving this thing? Is it duty or drudgery or desire? The thing that keeps you going above anything else is the passion. If there is a passion there, you will push through all those other elements and you will find a way. This is something that motivational speakers and books and everybody just pile mountains and mountains and mountains of literature on. But at the end of the day, there's only one thing that can truly drive us from where we are to where it is we want to be. And that is, in fact, not within us. It is not ours. But it is the passion of God himself. Today we're going to look at John 3.16. It's a verse you've read a lot of times. You don't even have to turn there yet. It's, it's a verse you've probably even memorized. And even if you haven't, you've never been to church before, you've probably seen a football game where there's some weird dude standing behind the goalpost going like this. That's John 3.16. That's a big one for us Christians. And we can quote it and run right through it without even hardly thinking about it. But what I want to do today is dive into it in such a way that every time you hear it, you never hear it the same way again. When you look at this verse, you don't read the surface, but instead you hear the underlying drive, the motivation, the thing that is pushing it forward. What's behind it is this. I think uh, there's a relatively simple way to say it for our structure aficionados out there, here it is, um, God's passion for us drives him. Therefore, the result or the following thing that we want as a result is that our passion for us, him would drive us. This is what I mean when I talk about la passione, the thing that underlies it all, that drives it, the force behind our whole existence. God's passion for us drives Him. May our passion for Him drive us. So before we get to John 3.16, I want to just back up the bus a little bit and start in John chapter 1. This chapter has some of the deepest and richest and most beautiful theology in all of the Bible. But I want to just move straight into the narrative or the storyline where it begins to, to talk about how Jesus came into the world. So John chapter 1, uh, verse 10, in the New Living Translation, because it's just a little more poetic at this point, says it like this. It says, Jesus came in to the very world that he created. That, in and of itself, is a spectacular thing. But as you hear about this grand and beautiful cosmic story, what you would expect is that Jesus comes in and everybody's like, hurrah, here's the guy to save the day. But what you find instead is something entirely different. Looking at the very next verse, the very next verse, verse 11, says he came to his own people, came home to his family, expecting a warm welcome. And what happened? Even they rejected him that's sad that's not what i was expecting that's not what i was hoping but indeed that's what happened but verse 12 tells us to all who believed in him and accepted him he gave the right to become children of god not slaves not servants but in fact children 
well, how in the world did that happen, preacher? Well, verse 13 tells us, they, that is the children of God, they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion, but a birth that comes from the passion, if you will, of God. Let me transition this a little bit into everyday life and talk about parenting for a second. It doesn't matter if you're a parent or not, if you've ever been a parent, or if you're ever going to be a parent. I think you've probably spoken at some point in time to a parent. And if you've ever asked them, what is parenting like? It depends on the day, but if they give you an, an honest answer, they will not say, oh, it's a breeze, it's easy, it's fun. Every day is cupcakes and dandelions. It's great, <laughs> you know. There's 20 seconds when you come home and they're like, Daddy! <laughs> and then after that, it's not the same. <laughs> after that, it changes. And what I soon discovered in being a parent is that it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Now, marriage is one thing, but at least you're interacting with another adult. But in parenting, whew, it's exhausting. Emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually, Kids, I know you're sitting there saying, no, right, come on, it's me, right? No, I'm telling you, hear me now, believe me later. It's hard. It's really, really hard. What happens is you're, if you're like me, you're a guy and you've got like two emotions. And then, <laughs> yes, amen, <laughs> all right? And then so it's kind of like this. You're in the bathroom at Meyer or Walmart and you're like, I got this. There's the sink and there's the other spot. I know what I'm doing. And then you walk out and you're like, whoa, <laughs> what just happened? I had a baby. Now there's all these emotions I've never experienced in my whole life and I have no idea. She's crying. She's screaming. Is she mad at me? Is she like me? Is she hungry? Is she I, I don't know. What is going on? I'm freaking out. I can't sleep. Now I'm a parent. And you do that for like 18, 20, 30 odd years. I don't know, a long time. <laughs> Hasn't stopped for us yet. <laughs> and you go through this process and it's incredibly stretching and it's, it's different because you go from a spot where you're spending all your money and all your time on yourself, which is really cool, and then all of a sudden you're spending all your money and all your time on somebody else. <laughs> and everything changes and you're like, whoo, this is stretching. And the truth of it is, we love our kids and we give our lives for our kids in 30 seconds. I mean, no, no questions asked. But it is a difficult, difficult thing. And so God, knowing this in his wisdom, because he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he knew that in order for that command to take place, he was going to have to put a little carrot with the stick, right? And so... God, in his wisdom, pairs passion and parenting. He pairs those things together because why? If we looked at the cost-benefit analysis, if we examined the risk and looked at the expense and we look at how much it costs to raise a child and you just did the math, at the end of the day, you'd say, no, no thanks. But for some reason, God wants to fill the earth, wants us to steward it. And as a result, he says, I'm going to combine these two things, passion and procreation. And as a result, children come into the world. They're born. 
and the population then grows. In other words, what I'm saying to you this morning, I think you kind of already know, but I'm trying to explain it because it's going to go right into this text, is that human passion drives human procreation. Human passion drives human birth, and just like human passion drives human birth, so too does divine passion drive spiritual birth. Just as human passion drives physical birth, so too does God's passion drive spiritual birth. Now that's something we all get. That's what John 1.13 says. You know, basically children result from human passion. And that's something a guy by the na- name of Nicodemus understood as well. Nicodemus is kind of a neat guy because as you heard uh, Dr. Dan say today, he said, hey, look, there's Old Testament people that are looking forward to Christ and there's New Testament people looking back to Christ. But Nicodemus is cool because he was both, right? He was like before Christ and he was after Christ too. And so here's Nicodemus, and he's an intelligent guy. He's well-educated. He's an expert in Old Testament prophecy. He's read the prophets. He's read the law. He knows what to look for, and he knows what to expect. He's anticipating the coming Messiah. And so Nicodemus is thinking, okay, I'm keeping my eyes out. I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm ready. I'm ready. There's this Rome thing. We're looking for a deliverer. Where's the anointed king? We know he's coming back. David's promise is coming true. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. It's like, hey, this guy just turned water into wine. He's healing people. The deaf hear, the mute speak, the blind can see, the lame walk. This is something. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's something. And so Nicodemus is thinking, all right, is this Isaiah? Is this Deuteronomy? Is this the Psalms? Is this, what's going on? Is this guy the Messiah or is he the forerunner to the Messiah? Who is he? I might as well go find out. Well, I can't do that during the day because that could have political implications. And not only that, I might get myself in trouble. So let's go chat at night. And he shows up and he begins to ask Jesus some questions like, hey, explain this. Who are you? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And Jesus, in his beautifully enigmatic way, his completely cryptic answers, says, you must be born again. I just love this about Jesus personally because today we like sound bites and tweets and little things that are short statements that give us the answer without even reading the text. The reality is Jesus flips it upside down, turns it around, asks a question and spins it back on him. (laughs) And Nicodemus is left scratching his head going, what? Born again? What are you talking about? (laughs) Born again. Yeah, like I can go back inside my mom and be born again. And what Jesus is doing What he often, not always, but nearly always does is using the physical world to explain the spiritual. He's taking a natural phenomenon and relating it to the supernatural. He says, Nick, yeah, I know, you get it. You understand this one piece, but I want to show you something else. Human birth occurs from human passion, but divine birth occurs from divine passion. So John, verse, chapter 1, verse 13, says it again. It says, look, children of God are reborn a second time. Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion, but a birth that comes from God. Well, how does that happen? Well, 
Because God feels passion. God is driven to pursue to such an extent that the Bible says that God so loved. He so loved. He felt so passionate. He was absolutely crazy, driven, and insanely, madly in love with his creation that he actually gave his only son. That's crazy. That is over the top insane that God would love humanity. I don't love anything that I make. I make a mess. God does all things well, and then we made a mess out of that. You look at what happened to creation and how far it went from his perfection, and God would have been just in every way to simply obliterate it and wipe it out. He has no need of humanity. God is perfectly happy and content in and of himself. He exists with no need for anything whatsoever. And he creates out of his goodness, and then that creation goes bad. And now what do we see? We see greed, lust, pride, deceit, contempt, decay, sin, death, war, famine, disease, injustice. What part of that is good? Is there anything in us that is attractive whatsoever? I don't think so. And in fact, when I read the biblical narrative, it gets even worse. It says that even our best moments are awful. Isaiah says all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Mother Teresa, the Pope, every saint you can name and imagine. All of them, Romans tells us, have sinned And fallen so far short of the glory of God that it's unbelievable. And if we for a second believe the lies of all the self-help books and popular television shows that we have no sin. Then we are doing nothing more, John tells us, than deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. For the Bible makes it very clear that there is no one who does not sin. I sit on a stage and I sin just as big and as bad as any of you. And the same thing happens to me that happens to you. You feel regret, you feel dirty, you feel yuck, you feel unattractive, and we're right. For we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and there is nothing attractive in us whatsoever. You're dead. God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Wages of sin is death. And we did, and we did. This then is what's so absolutely amazing about the perfect love of God. 1 John tells us, this is love then. This is what it is. It's not that we love God. There's nothing good in us whatsoever. That's clear. But that He loved us. And as a result... Because he loved us, because of his passion for us, then we can love him. 1 John 4.19 says, when we love, because he first loved. In other words, what I'm trying to communicate is that God is love. And that's very different from saying that God feels love or God does love or anything else. What that means for you is this. God loves you not based on your character, but based on his character. Did you hear that? 
That's one to write down. He loves you not based on your character, but on his character. Which means what? Well, my character changes day by day. I try to be consistent, but how consistent am I? Some days I feel good, some days I feel bad. Sometimes it rains, sometimes it pours. Sometimes I'm super spiritual, sometimes I'm not so spiritual. Some days I'm sick, some days I'm healthy. Up and down, ebb and flow, all over the place. I'm a weak, frail, sinful human being. I don't always get it right. I sin. But God, on the other hand, what is God like? Well, he's infinite. He's almighty. He's unchanging. He's all-powerful. He's unstoppable. He's constant. He's unconditional. There's no conditions like if he gets oxygen, he's going to survive, and if he doesn't, he won't. No, he doesn't even need space, time, or anything else that we think about. He just is. He is completely unconditional. And so when the Bible says that God loves us, what's so beautiful about that is because he is love, then his love corresponds to who he is. It is just like him. That means students, elderly, suffering, whoever, that his love never changes. That it's not based on you. That it is infinite. That it's it's all-powerful. It's unstoppable. It's constant. It's unchanging. Just like God. And that is a beautiful thing. For God's passion for us then is always driven and never changing, unconditional and unstoppable. Hey church, has anyone ever told you that God loves you? And that is not like God feels good about you today and tomorrow maybe he won't depending on what you do. That is like God is love infinitely and eternally unstoppably unchanging no matter what forever and ever god loves you amen amen it's not based on us it's based on him god's passion for us drives him for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm glad to see there's some youth here and some kiddos as well. Let's see if there's, and and this is a little bit of a trick question, so don't be feeling bad if you get it wrong. This is just to show you what we normally think and then what we actually should think, okay? So, when you hear eternal life, what is that? Anybody, what is it? Okay, I need it louder from one person. Eternal life, what is it? Life that lasts forever. That's what we think, isn't it? Eternal life is life that lasts forever. But here's the thing. God existed before there was forever. (laughs) In other words, there was no time. And time is not really a thing for him. So we, on this earth, look up at the sun and Things spin around in different ways, and it's night and it's day, and we get up and we measure our existence in terms of time. But the reality is God is completely outside of that, and so the Bible paints this picture of a different kind of life. It says that you will experience the life of the age to come. That's the original language. So how do we translate that? Well, I guess eternal. I don't know. But really what it is, is the life of the age to come. And what that means is this. When we are 
sort of reducing it down to a length of time or a time span of being eternal versus temporary, we're actually missing the real import of this phrase. What this is saying is that God has planted a seed in your heart and caused it to germinate to such an extent that it's taking root and reaching up and you're beginning to realize that this life is not all there is. That in fact, there's something more. That maybe I belong somewhere else. And all of a sudden, those things that I used to want, I don't really want as much anymore. At least, they don't seem to make me quite as happy. And all of a sudden, the things that I used to think were just dull and drudgery and duty are becoming more attractive. My heart is changing. My desires is changing. I've been reborn, and now I'm beginning to experience la passione. Now is where it starts, because all of a sudden I have believed in Jesus, and I've been reborn. And where I used to like fishing and hunting and football, and I could do those all day long, now I'm like, Okay, I got to watch a four-hour game to feel happy when in 15 minutes I could read my Bible and pray and come away twice as good as anything else? Why? I only have a little bit of time, if you will, and I need to spend it where it counts. What am I doing? Which activity fulfills me more and makes me feel better at the end of the day? Yeah, guys, that's a miracle. I can see some guys shaking their head right now. No way. Yeah. When you are reborn, everything changes. And you begin to realize you are not a citizen of this world, but you belong somewhere else, and you are longing for your home, and you are praying just like Christ. God, may your will be done, and may your kingdom come. Because that's what I want more than anything else. I don't want this other stuff. It's not interesting. It's dull. It's lifeless. But I now have eternal life. And here's the key feature. That's what that thing is inside of you that you're feeling that lets you know there's something more. You have a longing. You have a desire. And you try to fulfill it with something and it doesn't work. That's eternal life. Eternal life is telling you these things don't count. Something else does. So in other words, I'm saying to you this morning, right now, if you are sitting here and you believe in Jesus, you at this very moment, have eternal life. It's not that you wait until you die and then you get eternal life, but you have it right now. That it's growing inside of you and it won't be realized till you're with Christ in eternity, but you know it's there and you can feel it. And there's a power, there's a wind, there's a force, there's a something inside of you that says things need to change and they're about to. That's eternal life. If you think I'm crazy, which I am a little, let's look at somebody who's even crazier than I. His name is Jesus. And in John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Hey, folks, truly, truly. That's like when Jesus is looking at you and sort of slapping you upside the head and saying, Come on, y'all, listen. What are you doing? Pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, what? We'll have? Eventually might, maybe, if you're good enough, perhaps if I don't get mad and change my mind. No. In his constancy, in his passion, in his eternality, and everything else, God says, you have 
I give to you at this very moment eternal life. That right now he does not come into judgment, but right now has passed from death to life. The preachers get it wrong. The funeral where the guy says now he has eternal life, wrong. He had it when he first believed. Now it's fully realized. But it was growing in him up until this point when he finally walked through the door. And said, ah, there it is. I've been looking for that. My whole life's been stinky up until this point, never quite there, and now I'm finally free. That eternal life is real. And John says it consistently, 100% of the time, all the time, study the book, I dare you. You have eternal life. It's not something you get when you die. You get it now. Truly, truly, Jesus says, John 6, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It is your present possession. It is of a different quality and a different nature altogether, and it is within you. That is eternal life. That is la passione, the thing that drives you. So God's passion for us drives him to such an extent that he gives his only son so that whoever believes in him will have in this very moment in our current present existence a life that belongs to the age to come, eternal life. That is God's passion. May then our passion for him drive us. Well, that's a cute saying, Jeremy, and I feel good about that right now in church. You know, I'm sitting comfortably, the air conditioner's working, my friends and family are around me, it's all good. But I go home, and however you want to say it, things change. Not everything's going so well. How do I get there? Well, it's like sailing. <laughs> no, that doesn't help very much because I don't know anything about sailing either. But I read about this and I thought, ah, this is it. Here's the thing with sailing. Sailing, now grant me this for the sake of analogy, okay? Nobody undercut this, ready? <laughs> no motors or anything. Real sailing, the boat is entirely powered by wind. There's no backup system, generator, or anything else. There is a force that is external to it, that is going to move this ship along. Yet at the same time, those who are on board, from the captain all the way down to the very bottom of the rung, have to do their job to make this thing happen. They have to hoist the sails, they have to do the mast and whatever else is they do to capture the wind and be propelled along the course that has been charted out for them. This is the confusing part about the Christian life because one Sunday you come and the preacher says to you, hey, it's not about you, it's all God, so let his power take control and just trust in him and believe in him as the motivating and driving force behind your faith. And then you come back next week. The preacher says, come on, you guys need to get to work. <laughs> What are you doing? Get up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Come on. And there's this strange sense in which it's all by grace through faith and yet at the same time work out your salvation with fear and trembling and you're going, how in the world do I balance these two things? Well, it's like sailing. You have to acknowledge and realize that that force that drives your faith 
the Holy Spirit is outside of you in a sense. So it is an external power that comes into you and once it's in you, then you have to hoist the sails and capture that power so that you are blown along. Well, how do I do that? Well, it's actually really, really simple. Believe it or not, it's the same application every Sunday. It's not a fancy five-step discipleship program to this or that or this or that. It's the good old-fashioned Read your Bible and pray. That's it. That's the very most effective thing you can do to capture the wind and let the Spirit propel you along the path. Well, come on, Pastor Jeremy. I mean, that book, it's just a book. Maybe you just want me to learn more. Maybe you're just after this for knowledge's sake. Maybe you just love theology so much it's your hobby horse and that's what you want to do is study all the time. No, no, no. Here's the thing. The book is alive. Because Christ is alive. If Jesus the Word was dead, then Jesus the Bible, or the Word the Bible, wouldn't matter. But because the central theme and figure of the book is living and active, therefore the book itself is living and active. Because the wind still blows, not only did it blow and breathe Scripture into existence, but it can still blow and breathe that Scripture into you until it is internalized and transformational and changing and all of a sudden rooting and blooming and coming from the inside out. The Word of God is alive. Jesus is alive. The Bible is alive. And we think somehow in the New Testament that if we just had a burning bush and we heard God's Spirit speaking out of it, that like Moses, we'd be like, wow, now we're on fire. The fire never quenched. The fire never died. Jesus is alive and you have a burning bush and it's called the Bible. And you need to go to that bush and let it burn you. And burn inside of you to the point where you can't hold it back. And once that's in there, all of a sudden, you realize, man, I've been reborn. My desires change, my life changes, and everything else follows after that. So read your Bible. Number two, pray. Pray. I know that sounds like, wow, that's, I mean, that, that's profound, Pastor Jeremy. No, really, it actually is. But Pastor Jeremy, I've prayed for things before, and they never happened. I mean, I asked for this. I remember the time when all the elders of the church got together and they fasted and they prayed and they anointed this person with oil and everybody, and they died. What gives? C.S. Lewis, whose wife died of cancer, says this, I pray not because it changes God, but instead because it changes me. This is what God wants when you pray. He wants you to keep asking and asking and asking. Why? Not because he doesn't know what you already want. Not because if you just ask enough times that you're going to get it. Not because maybe by manipulating the stars and the planets and the whatever just right, all of a sudden he'll give in. No. He wants you to keep asking until your ask become his ask. Until now what your heart is asking for is what his heart is asking for. And as you pray 
and you ask and you reveal your desires, God will work on those and rub on those to such an extent that every morning you wake up, at first you say, Lord God, give me a million dollars. Eventually you get to the point where you're saying, Lord God, give me Jesus. And I don't care what else. Just give me that. Let everything else burn and go to whatever. But give me him. That's a change. And then you know you've crossed the line. And you've come to the point where God's passion is now driving your passion. And his passion for you has taken root in such, to such an extent that your heart now feels a passion for him. So much so that you get up in the morning and you're delighted to seek his face and you're looking for him in every moment and every opportunity of the day. So when bad stuff comes, you're like, okay, here it comes, Lord God. Where are you? Please help. Jesus, I need you right now. Are you with me? Yes, you are. Okay, I'm good. What would you have me to do? Oh, Lord, please help. Please help. God's passion for us drives him to us. May our passion for him drive us in the same way. Father, we thank you for coming to us and sending Jesus and rescuing us. We certainly made a mess with all of our sin and we don't get it right and we do it every single day. I just pray, God, that as I go home, as we go home, as we interact with one another, as we interact with our families, Lord, that ultimately be a reflection of our interaction with you. God, give us that time that is sweet and special in your word and in prayer that will drive us to our knees to the God of mercy and grace who saves us from all of our sin, redeeming the time for the days are evil and driving us forward to that life we've ultimately be called to, the life in you. God, we praise you and thank you for giving us Jesus and eternal life. In his name we pray, amen.